right. Good morning, church. Got your Bible? Open it up to Matthew chapter 7. And as you turn there, uh, I do want to uh, welcome you, welcome the guests. If you're a guest in the room, man, we're glad you joined us this morning. Uh, We're thrilled to have you in our service, and we are walking through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, So we're a couple verses into chapter 7 of Matthew, so if you want to turn there, that'd be great, and uh, I'll catch you up while you're turning there. Um, As I mentioned, our review of this sermon gets longer and longer every week, so um, I'm not going to review it in detail, but um, I do want to let you know that we've been walking through the sermon. If you want to know kind of the cliff notes, uh, the Sermon on the Mount for Dummies, if you want to know kind of the, the summary of it, it's that Jesus is presenting the greatest sermon ever recorded. And what he's doing is he's contrasting the outward exterior religion performance of the scribes and the Pharisees versus an inward devotion and a changed heart, therefore a changed behavior and a changed life of a redeemed believer in Jesus. So you've got the redeemed and you've got the religious. That's what Jesus is contrasting the two of those. And the trick is that the, the hard part about this, the reason this sermon has been so painful for us, um, has been so intense as far as just thinking about these things and pondering these things is because on the outside, these things look the same, right? There's two people that are giving, there's two people that are serving, two people that are singing, two people that are lifting their hands, two people put money in the bucket, two people open their Bibles, two people take notes. One is doing it to perform religiously to hope that God might look at them and deem them worthy based on their works, their good deeds, all of those things. The other person is doing it because they have been redeemed, because of what God has done on their behalf, and now I give and I worship and I lift my hands and I serve, not to get anything from him. He's already given me himself. He's already given me Christ. Now I do it because of what he's done. You see why these are so tricky? Why they... um, why this is painful, because we have to constantly evaluate, okay, why do I do these things, right? We're not critiquing behaviors this morning. We're critiquing the reasons behind your behaviors. And this is why we all have to really think and ponder and meditate and go, okay, why am I singing? Why am I lifting my hands? All of those things. Is it because I want to perform or is it because I know that my performance means nothing? And if I performed, I would never make it. Standing before God in my own works, in my own earnings, in my own wages of what I've incurred, right? I, there's no way I would make it. So I lift my hands because I've been redeemed, I've been saved, and it's undeserved, unearned, free gift of God's grace and righteousness in Christ. You see the difference? And all throughout the sermon, Jesus has been talking about the heart attitude of the redeemed versus the religious Um, He's been talking about um, the way to interpret the law that's religious and the way to interpret the law that's redeemed. And I don't want to just obey God's law in the externals. I want to obey it in my heart, right? And then he moves into the different religious practices of giving and tithing and praying, the religious way to do those, those versus the redeemed way to do those. Then he moves into the things that we treasured, right? The religious, even the rebellious, we treasure the things of this earth, We run after those things. I find my worth or my value from the things of the earth or the redeemed realize that nothing in this world will ever satisfy my soul and I look look to Jesus to be my treasure. I long for him to satisfy me, to fulfill me, to be my identity, to be my purpose, to be my joy, to be my contentment, all of those things. And who we decide is our treasure determines a couple things. Jesus tells us what we get anxious about, right? Your treasure will determine what you get anxious about. You will get anxious about the things that you treasure. 
One of the telltale signs of what you treasure is what you get anxious about. There's a whole realm of my life that I just don't get anxious about because I don't care about those things. I don't love those things. There's lots of things that I'm just ignorant to that I don't get anxious about because I don't treasure those things. But boy, do I get anxious about the things that I treasure all the time. Same thing with my prayer life. There's a whole realm of things that I just don't pray about. Why? Because I don't treasure them. But I will pray about the things that I treasure. If you wanna know what you've been treasuring lately, think about what's made you anxious or the things that you have prayed for. And the, the, the hard thing we've had to complicate over the, or contemplate over the last few sermons is what are those things? Are they earthly things? Are they heavenly things? Are they man-centered things? Are they God-centered and Christ-centered, Christ-exalting things? Is that the stuff that I pray about? And then Jesus moves into um, this section that we talked about um, last week, which is that we would keep on asking, we would keep on seeking, we would keep on knocking. Why? Because we have a heavenly Father. We know we are evil, right? You who are evil and your heavenly Father in heaven, how much more does he love you, right? That we know that we have a heavenly Father who will give us good gifts. He will give us good things. And the heart posture of a believer is to ask for whatever, right? Ephesians 6, ask, um, pray in the Spirit in all occasions with all kinds of prayers and all kinds of requests, right? Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing, but in everything through prayer and supplication, right? Be anxious for nothing, pray about everything. Like, there's no right or wrong thing that you can ask for. But the heart posture of a believer who's been redeemed is, God, here's what we're struggling with. Here's where we need your provision. Here's where we're anxious, Here's where we could use your help. God, here's all the ways we need your help. But if you don't do a single thing, if you say no, if you say later, if you say yes, regardless of how you answer, you're enough for me. That's the heart posture of a believer. That we know that whether God answers our prayer with a yes, with a no, with a I've got that in my sovereign plan later for you, that the greatest gift of all we need is more of himself. That he would sustain us, he would keep us, he would be our contentment. He would be our joy, all of those kind of things. Now, as if the sermon hasn't been difficult enough, Jesus is going to hit the hammer on the nail and end all of our hopes of being good enough, being righteous enough, being holy enough in our own self, in our own works, and then he is going to essentially turn this ship and he's going to communicate with some urgency um, the need for us to choose, to choose a gate and to choose a road and to choose which crowd we are going to be in and ultimately choose a destination. And then in the next couple of weeks, he's going to say that um, we have to choose between these two prophets, um, that we choose between two trees that bear two different kinds of fruit. We choose to be one of two kinds of builders, building one of two kinds of houses, on one of two kinds of foundations. Well, I just wanna kind of preface this with the next few weeks of the Sermon on the Mount is going to have some urgency to it. It's gonna have some weightiness to it um, because it's Jesus making the turn in his sermon. The body of the sermon, after we look at verse 12 here, is essentially over. And then Jesus is landing the plane and he's ending the sermon with some urgency. Now you gotta choose which gate, which path, which way, which end, which tree, which fruit, which house, which foundation. 
And that's how he ends the sermon. We've only got about 14, 15 verses left after this week. And he's going to tell us that it's time to make a decision. So hopefully by now you're in Matthew chapter seven. We're gonna read verses 12 through 14 and then we'll pray and dive into verse 12. Um, so if you've got your Bible, um, or if you don't have your Bible, the verses will be on the screen, but if you'll stand for us, um, not for me, I guess, if you'll stand uh, as we give honor and reverence to God's word and um, read this together. This is Matthew 7, 12 through 14. It says, so whatever you wish others, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Let's pray together. God, as we look at this text, Father, I ask um, that I would communicate with the urgency that Jesus gives towards the end of the sermon. But God, ultimately, that you would give us soft hearts, give us humble hearts, um, God, to discern our way. The scripture calls us to test to see that our faith is genuine. God, that we would question the motives of our hearts. We would ask you to search us and know us and see if there is any um, grievous way or any grievous thought within us. God, examine our hearts and our minds. We want to continually walk in your truth. So test us and try us, God, by your word. I pray that we would test ourselves and ultimately, God, that the gospel would ring forth and that um, we would see your goodness in this text and see Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can have a seat. So like I said, um, Jesus is going to give us kind of one last verse about the body of this sermon, which is the golden rule. And uh, studying this verse this week um, went from the golden rule to uh, a painful verse um, to look at, to read, to apply, um, because it is intense. And Jesus, if he's going to summarize the entire sermon. In fact, if he's going to summarize the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets, um, he does it with the golden rule. Um, so it's not a you know cheeky kind of Christian platitude. Um, have you ever studied something and examined it? You thought you knew what it meant and then you got to it and you looked at it hard enough and you studied it and you're like, whoa, there's a lot more here than I ever thought. Uh, that's the golden rule for me. Um, so welcome and share in my suffering this morning as we look at it. So um, let's look at verse 12. He says this, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, look at the word so there. Um, the word so there in the Greek is the word un. It's actually um, also the word that we use for therefore. Um, so um, I'm not advertising changing words. I'm not saying you need to know Greek to be able to read your Bible. So is a good word there. It's a good translation. But I want you to see this isn't a so like, you know, middle school girl language. Like, so there was this boy the other day. And those, like, this is a so that's essentially purpose, you know, functioning there's a therefore. Like, in light of what Jesus has said, here's how we're to live now. Because of what's been said, here's what I wanna say next. Does that make sense? It's, it's, it's more than just a, a casual kind of transition word. It's a, in light of what's already been stated, here's how I want you to, and here's why I want you to see this. Jesus is connecting this phrase, the golden rule, back to Matthew chapter seven, verses seven through 11. And I would even argue you could make the claim that he's connecting this verse as kind of the summary statement as a therefore in light of the entire Sermon on the Mount. If you want the summary of the Sermon on the Mount, I think Jesus and I could argue that the golden rule would, would suffice. It at least connects back to seven through 11. So Jesus is connecting this 
verse, verse 12, back to the fact that we have a heavenly father in heaven who we are supposed to ask and seek and knock to and run to and run after, and we can trust that he's going to provide us with good things, and the greatest gift of all is more of himself. He's given himself to us through Christ, and he will continue to give more of his presence, more of his peace, more of his joy as we meditate on the gospel. So I want you to see that because we're gonna come back to that. But notice this also. Jesus teaches the golden rule in the positive. And what I mean by that is most of the time growing up that I was taught the golden rule, it was always in the negative. It was a teacher, it was a parent saying, hey, you wouldn't want them to do that to you, would you? So don't do that to them. It's in the negative, right? It's don't do to others the things that you don't want them to do to you. And it's in the negative. And that's not bad, all right? If someone taught it to you that way, you know, I'm not saying my VBS teachers were a waste and they did something wrong or anything like that. But what I am saying is that it's important to notice that Jesus teaches it in the positive. If you look at it in the negative, it still produces things that are good, right? To not do things that we don't want people to do to us. But it essentially produces nothing, if that makes sense. Like it, it produces less evil or it prevents evil from happening, but it doesn't produce anything good. You see what I mean by that? If you teach it in the negative, don't do things that you don't want others to do to you. You know, don't lie to my wife because I don't want my wife to lie to me. Well, if I obey that and I don't, it, it just essentially produces nothing, right? Just less evil. It, it prohibits more evil from entering the earth. But notice what happens when you teach it in the positive. Where Jesus says, all, whatever, right? The word there in Greek is, is, is a form of the word all, right? All things, whatever things, anything you can think of that you would want someone to do to you, any way you can think of that you would want them to love you, to encourage you, to be kind to you, that's the requirement that you are to give, that's the standard that you are to treat the people around you. Like that's a pretty giant standard, right? All the ways that I long to be loved and to be treated and to be cared for, to be spoken to, to be encouraged, that's the things we're supposed to be doing to one another. That's the standard, which is crazy to me. There is a huge difference between interpreting this in the negative and in the positive, which is why Jesus says, for this is the law and the prophets. And that word for there is another, pay attention to the conjunctions in the scriptures, these transitional words, because they communicate a lot. So he says, whatever you want others to do to you, however you want other people to love you and to serve you and treat you, do those things to them for, and the word for there is, here's the reason why, because here's the reason. I'm about to give you the reason. He says, this is the law and the prophets. The word for there means because, or here's why, or the reason is. Give you an example, Ephesians 6, 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So what's the reason? What's the ground, right? What's the why? The reason that children should obey their parents in the Lord is because God says this is the right thing to do. It is right, it is righteous. It produces right things in your relationships between parents and children. So what does Jesus say here? Why, what's the reason that you and I should think about all the ways that we long to be treated and loved and that's the, the love and the treatment that we should be giving to others is because this is essentially all of the law and the prophets. 
This is it. If you want to summarize all of the Old Testament law, all of the 613 laws, it's think about all the ways that you long to be treated and treat other people that way. That's the law, right? Jesus summarized it in Matthew 23, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 5, verse 14 says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But what's crazy is that this is, the standard is perfection, right? Luke chapter 10, this lawyer comes up to try to test Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which you as high pointers, hopefully by now, we know that's a flawed question, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus give him? He doesn't say you can't. He points him to the standard of the law. He says, what does the law say? And the guy says, you should love your, he quotes Leviticus and Deuteronomy. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Now go and do that, right? Go and love God perfectly with all of your heart, 100% of your heart, 100% of your soul, 100% of your mind, 100% of your strength, 100% of the time. If you can do that and then love your neighbor as you love yourself, always, all the time, then you will be worthy to enter the kingdom. And the crazy part about this is, guys, I can't do that for a second. I have never loved God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength for a single second on this earth. I haven't. Sin is in me, like it's deep in there. Like even when I'm singing, when I'm praying, when I'm, when I'm doing good works, there's always like, Half a, there's always a percentage of my motive that's trying to win a little bit of glory, that's trying to be seen, that's trying to do something, right? Like, I've never fully loved God with all of my heart and all of my soul. There's always praise I'm withholding. There's always a little bit of doubt. Like, there's always things that prevent me from loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and especially my neighbor as myself. Just when you and I might think that we've done it, You've, you've come to church enough time, you've heard enough sermons, and you're walking around like, I think I've got this th Christian thing figured out. Jesus gives us a whole other category of sins. He says all the things, all the ways that you want to be treated, all the ways that you long to be treated, you long to be loved, that's the thing you should be doing to your neighbor right now. That's the standard. That's the way you should love your neighbor. This whole other category. And what does James tell us? James 4 Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin, right? So just when we think we figured it out, just when we think we've got it all figured out and we, we're, we're doing enough, we're obeying the law, Jesus says, yeah, there's this whole other category. You know all the ways that you long to be treated? That's the way you, that's the standard. That's the way you should be treating the people around you, right? The sins of commission, the sins we commit, and the sins we disobey, and then Jesus says, yeah, there's this other category. All the things you should be doing that you're not doing. The sins that we choose to omit and the behaviors that we choose to omit. And we fall short of the standard, just when you and I might think that we're good enough, we're righteous enough to obey the standard, Jesus opens up a whole nother closet with a whole nother category that we fail to obey. We cannot meet the standard. I want people to be kind to me, patient with me, sacrificial with me, selfless towards me, generous towards me, have integrity towards me, be forgiving towards me, gracious towards me, encouraging towards me, completely faithful and loyal to me. 
I want people to give me the benefit of the doubt, be patient with me, but then when I turn the mirror around and start to look at how I've treated the people around me, man, do I fall short of that standard. All the ways that I long for people to treat me and do to me, there's no way that I meet that standard. But think about it. Think about if you apply that standard in your relationships, in your marriage, in your friendships. Think about if you're fighting with a sibling, with a friend, with a spouse, and in the middle of your fight, right, the volume's escalating, the tone has changed, you know, vocabulary has changed, stories and records of the past have been brought back to the present of all the things you did before and all the things you can you still struggle with. Remember that time you did this and nothing's changed, all of those things. Think about if you applied this standard, if you stopped in the heat of the argument and said, okay, how would I long for this person to treat me? And that's the way I'm going to treat them for the rest of this fight, right? Think about if we applied this standard in the middle of the argument, in the middle of the fight, how do I want them to treat me? And that's the way I'm gonna treat them. No guarantee that they're gonna reciprocate, that they're gonna pay back, they're gonna do any of those things. Do you see how high this standard is? And you see how often we do not meet it? Hammer, nail, coffin. Like, we can't meet the standard. We can't do it. But Jesus is summarizing the Old Testament law and he's summarizing the sermon. J.C. Ryle says this. He says, it settles 100 difficult points. It prevents the necessity of laying down endless little rules for our conduct in specific cases. Indeed, it is a principle of such wide application that Jesus could add the phrase, for this is the law and the prophets. If we could just do this in every situation, every relationship, every circumstance, if we could just treat others the way that we long and love to be treated, we wouldn't need the rest of the law. But we can't do that, can we? We can't. And in God's grace, he's given us a detailed law to help us in our sin. Tyler mentioned this a couple months ago. It's like telling your children, hey, you know, the goal here, here's the rule, love your sibling. But that's never enough for us, right? We have to go and add a bunch of more. No, loving your sibling means like stop sitting on them and stop poking them in the face and stop, you know, getting it all up in their grill all the time, right? Like we have to add a bunch more rules to the one rule. But if you wanna summarize the law, summarize all the rules, it's love God and love your neighbor or love your neighbor in the way that you long to be loved. That's the standard. And we fall short of that standard. And I would argue, remember what it's connected to. It's connected to Matthew 7, 7 through 11. The reason that we don't treat others this way is because we forget or we don't trust that we have a heavenly father who is going to protect us and care for us and give us good gifts and provide for us. And when we forget that, when we forget the gospel, we treat people the way that they've earned or the way we think they deserve, right? We withhold gifts, we withhold grace, we withhold kindness, because we've got to preserve self. It's because we forget the gospel. And that's the hammer and the nail, and now Jesus is going to transition, and he's going to say it's time to make a choice. This is the runway for the rest of the sermon as we transition to verse 13. He summarized the sermon with this one standard that none of us can meet, none of us can keep. And then he says this, right? There's two attitudes, there's two ways to interpret the law, two treasures, two masters, two ambitious, two ambitions, two ways to view our sin. 
We talked about this a couple weeks ago. The redeemed meditate on their sin and they abhor it, they hate it. They're constantly seeking the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome their sin. The religious make excuses for their sin, they justify their sin. And then we judge other people for their sin. We hide ours and judge you for yours. But the redeemed realize that I have a plank in my eye and I meditate on my sin and I hate it and I can't stand it and I welcome other brothers and sisters in to help me overcome it by the power of community and accountability and discipleship and the Holy Spirit. And then I humbly and carefully approach other brothers and sisters who are caught in sin, not to condemn them, but to restore them gently as Galatians 6 states. And now Jesus is going to tell us that there's two crowds to choose from, two gates, two ways that ultimately lead to two destinations. And I wanna stop here for a second because Jesus doesn't leave it up for debate. He doesn't, in two ways. One, he says that there's only two options. In a world and in a culture that says there's so many options, right, this pluralistic society, you follow your truth, I'll follow my truth, we'll all end up in the same place. You go your route, I'll go mine. You do your thing, I'll do mine. Oprah's famous for saying this. You've got your religion, I've got mine, he's got their religion, but I think we all just kind of end up in the same place. Jesus says no. There's only two roads you can go down. One is life and one is destruction. There's not 14 roads that lead to life. There's one. In this pluralistic world that we live in, Jesus cuts right through that and said there's only one way, but then Jesus doesn't leave us on our own to tell us which way to choose. Look at verse 13. He tells us which one to choose. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. And I love that he uses the word narrow there because the word narrow there in the Greek, I mean, it means narrow. It means narrow, it means confined, it means compressed, Essentially meaning that no baggage is allowed into the narrow gate. You can't bring anything. And for some of us, we love that because we've got a lot of rebellion in our past and their narrow gate means we don't get to bring our rebellion. But you know what this also means? We don't bring our religion either. That we don't get to bring our religion into the narrow gate. You don't get to bring your past sins or your current religious performance. That the narrow gate means you come empty-handed. It's the age-old hymn, rock of ages, cleft for me, right? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's the narrow way. And Jesus says, enter that way. And then he says this, and we'll come back to the narrow gate. He says, for the gate is this other gate. The gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. So you've got the narrow gate and little side note, commercial break. If you're reading the KJV, the King James this morning, your translation might say the straight gate. Um, that's a fine translation, it's okay. Um, the word straight there is actually derived from a Latin term. Um, but this is where we get the phrase, anybody ever heard the phrase, I'm on the straight and narrow? Um, this is where we get that term from. Um, so if you're reading the King James, just know that it means narrow, it means compressed, it means confined when it, means, when it says straight. But he says this, and I'll go ahead and read verse 14 so we can compare the two. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So let's look at the two, right? You've got the wide gate with the easy way, many enter, 
and it leads to destruction. And then you've got the narrow gate. The way is hard. Few enter, and it leads to life. And Jesus is cutting right through this multiple options, multiple religions, multiple things. And I would venture to say, I'll argue this morning, that all religions fall in one of these two ways, one of these two roads. Either you come empty-handed, dependent on someone else into the narrow gate, or you take the wide road, the wide gate. Every other religion, you name it, is the wide road. It's you depending on yourself, you standing in your own works, your own behavior, your own good deeds, and trying to win the approval of a deity above you to look at your works, to look at your deeds and deem you worthy. That's the wide gate. And it's wide because it's, it's what's natural to us. My default setting is to perform, is to try to earn, is to try to, right, to try to go and, and win God's love with my own behavior. I wake up and I move that way. That's the easy way, right? My default setting is just to move towards performance. The narrow way is to move away from performance and to move towards what is done in my place, to move towards the gospel, to remind myself of the gospel. That's not an easy thing to do every day. I forget the gospel all the time. And the narrow way is the way that comes empty-handed. The wide way is you name it, pick your deity. If it's Mormonism, if it's Hinduism, if it's Islam, Buddhism, you name it. There is a deity in the heavens and your goal is to try to win their approval with your good deeds. And what's crazy is you can even put religion, all the things that Jesus is preaching against in the Sermon on the Mount in that same category. You trying to win the approval of the God of the universe with your good deeds. And it's easy because you determine your own destiny. It's focused on you, it's focused on self, which is all of our default setting. I wake up every day and my focus in my flesh, in my sin is on me. It's not on God, it's not on his glory, it's not on the kingdom, it's on my agenda, my destiny, my wants, my desires. That's the easy way, that's the wide way. Choose your own destiny, choose your path. And then you stand before your deity one day holding on to your good works. You're giving to charity, your kind remarks towards people, you're holding the door for people, serving at the shelter, all those kind of things. None of those things are bad. But what I want us to see here is that on the surface, the wide road and the narrow road look the same. It's what Jesus has been talking about the whole sermon. The difference between the wide road and the narrow road is the reason that you're loving and you're giving and you're serving and you're obeying. You could be obeying the golden rule that I'm gonna treat other people the way I wanna be treated and still be on the wide road that leads to destruction. If you think that your love for other people is going to win God's love for you, you've missed it. What separates Christianity from all of these other religions? Pick your religion, Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism. All of those religions have a love for neighbor. Love for neighbor is not what gets you into the narrow gate. What gets you into the narrow gate is the reason that you love your neighbor. Not to try to win God's approval, but because you already have it in Christ. 
You know you can't earn his approval, you can't win his approval, and he has freely given it to you in his son. The danger of the easy way, and here's what's so fascinating about these two ways. If you look at them, what's so ironic and kind of paradoxical about this is one way looks wide and open and free and fun and enjoyable, you do you, you pursue your own path, you're your own king, you're your own master, you're your own Lord, you do what you think feels right in the moment, you think what you feel is good, you do all of those things, and then you stand on your throne as judge and you look around, there's always somebody who hasn't done as much good as you, and you go, of course I'm good. I'm a good person, I've done enough, of course I am. But the problem is, you stand before God one day and the only claim you can make is your own reputation, your own works, your own behavior, your own heart's meditations, and you can convince yourself that you're good enough when you look around, but when you stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords one day and you've chosen your own destiny and all you have to show for and to stand on is your own works and your own behavior, you know deep down that you don't meet the standard of goodness. You don't. We can fool people, we can make it look like we do, we can keep up this persona that we meet the standard, but when I stand before God one day, how, think about how weird and how arrogant you have to be to stand before the God of the universe and start using like first person pronouns. I did this, I did this, I was this way. Remember that time I did this, God, right? No, we'll talk about it in a couple weeks but we'll have one of two pleas before the Lord. It's either I or you, Jesus, finished work, done, or here's all the things that I did. You see the difference? Here's the wide way. Choose your destiny, choose your path, choose your religion. It's up to you and your own works, whether it's your own rebellion or your own religion. But what's so fascinating about these is one of the roads looks open and free and wide, but it leads to suffocation and burdens and bondage and pain and emptiness and slavery. The other road looks narrow and confined and restrictive, but when you enter it, it leads to life and joy and love and peace and contentment and the life you've always longed for. That's what's so interesting about the two roads is you've got people that, why would I do that? Look at, look at how much freedom is over here, the wide road. I get to be my own God. I get to pursue my own truth. I get to do my own thing. And all it leads to is bondage and emptiness and pain. I would venture to say that's most of our stories in the room, isn't it? That's my testimony. It's my story is I went through middle school and high school pursuing what I thought I needed, what I thought I wanted, trying to find my hope and my significance and my works and my behavior, trying to build my own kingdom, pursue my own truth, do my own things, pursue what I thought was right. And essentially, I attained it. I got to the junior year in high school and I had built my kingdom. I was popular, I was an athlete, I had dated popular girls, all the things. And I was so broken, and I'll never forget, I was at church camp, um, Panama City, Florida, on the curb with my youth pastor, just weeping, because I had built my kingdom at the cost of all of my friendships 
And I look back behind my life and it was just a wake of damage and manipulation and sorrow and lies. And I pursued the path to life and it brought me in bondage. And then you hear people say, why would you submit your life to this book? Right? It's so restrictive. It's so oppressive. Christianity is just so oppressive. Why would you submit your life to a book and, and follow these age-old rules and all of these things? And it's just a big to-do list of things that you're supposed to do and things that you don't do. It's so oppressive and restrictive. Why would you do that? And what's so fascinating is when you pursue it, when you enter into that gate, it looks narrow, it starts narrow, but boy, does it open up wide when you enter it. And you find the life you've longed for, the peace you've longed for, the joy you've longed for, the relationships you long for. And the wide gate starts wide, but it ends up really constrictive and narrow and broken and in bondage. You see the paradox? You see the difference? And Jesus is contrasting these two roads. I read a quote this week talking about the wide road, um, Peter Kreeft um, said that the national anthem of hell will be, I did it my way. I pursued my truth. I did what I thought was right. I did the things I wanted to do. I was my own king, my own master, my own Lord. I did it my way. Talking about the wide road. James actually calls this law. All of these oppressive, restrictive 613 laws of the Old Testament. What does James call it? In James chapter one, he calls it the perfect law that gives freedom. That the paradox of the Christian life is that, um, go figure, right? The, the, the creator of the universe, who created us, who created our hearts, who created relationships, who created all of life, gives us a manual of how we're supposed to know him and live within the world that he created, and it leads to life and freedom, and love, and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. It leads to all of those things. But it's the narrow way. It's not the popular way. The popular way is to, to depend on self, to pursue my own destiny, to be self-centered, self-focused, and to pursue my own truth, and to do my own thing, and to earn approval from a deity with my own works and my own behavior. Proverbs Eight, verse 35 says, whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus was talking to believers. He said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So what are the two ways? Obviously, Rebellion would be the wide way, but the part that we always forget, and it's honestly the part that Jesus has been focusing on in his entire sermon, is religion is also the wide way that leads to destruction, the wide gate. You depending on your own works, your own goodness, your own righteousness, it is the wide way that leads to destruction. What are the two ways? So many of us would think that the two ways are we've got good people over here and we've got bad people over here. And the good people get to go in the narrow way and the bad people get to go in the wide way. And Jesus says, no, 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 he's already given us the standard. We're all bad. Romans 3, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. 
Um, Genesis chapter six, God looks down at humanity and says the thoughts of man's heart was evil continuously. That's me. Wicked, prone to wander. It's not the good on this good on this side, the bad on this side. No, the narrow way is those that know they're a wretch and know that they're bad and they cling to the cross. The wide way is those that still think that they can be good enough, still think that they can earn it and maybe have convinced themselves that they have earned it and they do deserve it. Do you see the difference? One way is to be spiritually bankrupt. The other way is to be proud and boast in your own works. One way is finding your worth and your value in the cross. The other way is finding your worth and your value in your works. One way is to serve Jesus as your master. The other is you're your own master. Choose your own destiny. You're your own king. You're your own judge. One way is the real problem is in them. I'm good enough. I'm not like them. There's always gonna be somebody that you can say, hey, at least I'm not like them. Like, I'm a good person, right? My deity, God, of course, why would God, you know, I give to charity, I'm nice, I'm a good neighbor. Why would God say, I never knew you to me? Problem's not me, the problem's them. He should say that to them. But the narrow way says, no, 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 the problem's in here. The problem is me. The problem is the sin in me. I'm not righteous. I'm not good enough. I can never be righteous. I can never be good enough. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. He's my righteousness. He's my only hope. He's my only plea. He's my anchor for my life. You see the difference? The difference is not love for neighbor. The difference is not good works. There's good works on both paths. This is the scary part of the sermon. We've been thinking about this and contemplating this the entire sermon series. There could be two people in this room with hands raised, mouths open, songs coming out, money in the bucket, one on the path to life and one on the path to destruction. And the difference between the two is one is hoping that from their works, God will finally love them and deem them worthy. The other one is certain that they don't have the works, they don't have the earning, they don't have the striving, but the good news of the gospel is Jesus Christ has come down and met the standard in our place. And now we raise our hands, we sing, not hoping God will love us, but because of what he has done through Jesus Christ on the cross. You see the difference? And I can't discern that in you. This is why this series is so painful because you have to sit like I have all week long and think about your actions, think about the way you love people, think about the reason you give, the reason you do things and test your motives and test the intentions of your heart. And it doesn't mean that, you know, as soon as you stumble and you perform again that you're not saved. Please don't hear me. I'm not saying that you can start on the narrow road and then just hop to the wide road, right? If you claim Jesus and you trust him to be your righteousness, to be your holiness, to be your perfect life and your sacrificial death on the cross, if you trust him, you're on the narrow road. 
And our default setting is to wake up. My, I guarantee you tomorrow I'm gonna wake up and my default is gonna be to start striving again. Does it mean I lost my salvation? No. My salvation wasn't dependent on me. I didn't do anything to earn it. I can't do anything to lose it. Can I lose my salvation? If Jesus can sin, then yeah. But he can't. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's finished the work. It is finished. It's done, period. It's finished. But how do we continue to walk and to live in this narrow way that doesn't look at other people like I'm better than you or I'm more superior to you, like I've earned it, I've figured this stuff out? How do I wake up and live on the narrow way is I remember the gospel. I remember I didn't do anything to earn it. I didn't do anything to deserve it. That Jesus has earned it. That he is the one who has freely given me a free gift of God's grace and mercy in Christ Jesus. That's hard to do. And this is why. Let's spend a few minutes talking on the fact that Jesus says it's narrow, the gate's narrow, the way is hard. That as soon as you enter the narrow gate, you are suddenly not exempt from suffering. There's suffering on both sides. And what I would argue is if, if you're on the wide gate, you don't have a theological framework for suffering. If you're your own God, you're your own deity, you're pursuing your own fulfillment, your own happiness, then suffering is a roadblock, right? But if I'm on the narrow gate and I realize that my life is for Christ and my goal is to know Christ and to become more like Christ, then suffering's not a roadblock for me. God can use suffering, Romans 8, 28, in all things. God can work even the darkest moments of my life to conform me to the image of his son. So it's not like you enter in the narrow gate and now life just gets peachy and you get all the parking spots in the front of buildings and you never get sick or you never, no that we still experience suffering in both paths. But this path is difficult and it is hard because although we experience suffering and we have peace and we have joy in the midst of suffering, it takes work to remind myself of the gospel. It's difficult for me to constantly remember the gospel. And not only that, but there's a cost to this, entering the narrow gate. And it's a cost that we don't talk about a lot. But to follow Jesus, Jesus says, count the cost. A builder doesn't go and build a building without first counting the cost. There's a cost to following Jesus. But when I see the value and the beauty and the worth of the cross, I mean, I'll give my life. I'll get whatever you want. You can have my possessions. You can have my life. You can have my calling. You can have my future, whatever it is. But Jesus says, no, you got to count the cost. It's a difficult road to make disciples, to leverage your life, to know God and to make him known in the world means you have to give up your own truth, your own path, your own way, the things that you wanna do. And it doesn't mean you can never pursue or run after something that you want, but our joy, our peace, our worth, our value doesn't terminate in those things. But it's a difficult road. And then Jesus throws another layer on there. Not only suffering, not only the cost of following him and discipleship, but he also, he opened the sermon with blessed are you when you're persecuted, right? Notice that he says the, the crowd that follows it is few. He's not saying, and I, and I wanna be clear, um, don't let the word few cause doubt in your heart. Like few, does that mean like two or three? Like does that mean most of us in here aren't saved? No, he's, he's not saying few for you to doubt yourself. But what he's saying here is proportionally compared to the world, Jesus' followers are gonna be the minority. 
It's going to be hard. It's going to be a life of struggle and of toil and of discipleship, but it is worthy of the gospel. It is worthy of the gift of God and his grace that he's given us. And in fact, it's the life you've always longed for, to make an eternal impact on the world, to be used by God, to help see other people go from death to life, to see God's kingdom purposes expand on the earth. It's the adventure that we've always longed for. It's the only one that will satisfy your soul. It's the only one. But don't let the word few go, oh my goodness, like he said few. Like, am I really saved? Remember Revelation 7, verse nine says, um, John, this vision around the throne, he said, I saw a multitude that could not be numbered around the throne from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, worshiping the lamb on his throne there will be a multitude that cannot be numbered. Jesus is using the word few here to compare it to the wide road. That compared to the world, compared to the choose your own destiny, be your own God, pursue your own truth, Christians will be in the minority. And it will be hard, it will be struggle, we will be persecuted, we will be seen as bigots, we will be seen as oppressors, submitting ourselves to this book, restricting ourselves, all these naive ways of Christianity, it's gonna be difficult. But boy, is it gonna be worth it. And Jesus is laying before us these two options, these two gates, these two roads that ultimately have two ends. And I don't think we should skip the fact that Jesus uses the word destruction there. That the author of life says that if you choose this road, where you are dependent on your own works, your own goodness, to please God, to please whatever deity you choose, if it's dependent on you, it will lead to destruction. If you want to stand, we're all gonna stand before God one day, and if your plea is your own goodness, it will lead to destruction. And yes, God, because of our sin, is the destroyer, but he is also the creator way before he was the destroyer. And the author of life has created you to live forever if you are in Christ. And we should not sneak by when he says that it will lead to complete destruction. There's a warning there. Jesus has given this beautiful sermon of these two paths all throughout the sermon. Two houses you can build, two foundations you can build on. One's your own self, your own goodness, your own works. One's the finished work of Christ. And now it's up to us to choose. And at the core of each of these is one is you have to do and the other one is Jesus Christ has done it for you. And that's the goodness of the gospel. In our own strength, you and I, we could never walk the narrow road. Let's be clear. I don't have the heart's capacity. I don't have the goodness within me to walk the narrow road. But the good news of the gospel is Jesus walked the narrow road for me. I can't enter the narrow gate in my own works, in my own flesh, in my own heart. I can't do it. I'm too sinful, too wicked, too prone to wander. But the good news of the gospel is Jesus has entered the narrow gate in my place. He has walked the narrow road in my place. And he died for all the ways that I pursued the wide road. And now what's so crazy about this is Jesus not only entered the gate for us and walked the road for us, but now he is become the gate, and he has become the road. John 10, verse nine, I am the door. What does Jesus say? 
I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and find pasture. What's so crazy about this, in the first century, if you were a shepherd, what you would do is you would put stones in a circle to kind of entrap your sheep, but there would be an opening at the front, so you wouldn't want to pick up boulders and move them every time you let the sheep out. So the shepherd would literally lay in the opening. He would literally sleep and be the gate. He would be the door. And that's what Jesus is saying. I'm the door. I'm the gate. John 14, 6. I'm the road. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I am the life. And no one gets to the Father except through me. He's the road. He's the door. He's the way. He's entered the gate. He's walked the road in our place. And now he's become the gate and he's become the door. And if you want application this morning, here's two camps. If you have never trusted Jesus as your way and as the truth, as the gate, as the door, as your only plea, your only way to the Father, the only way, the only thing you have to do to enter the narrow gate. And people, I hear this all the time. Christianity is so exclusive, right? It's so exclusive. How can there only be one way? That's so exclusive. There's billions of people in the world. Why is there only one way? Yes, it's exclusive in that there is only one solution, but it is incredibly inclusive in that the only requirement you have to bring to the door is nothing is to lay down your sin, lay down your brokenness, honestly, just finally come clean about it and put your faith and your hope and your trust in the finished work of Jesus. So yes, it's exclusive that there's only one way, but man, is it inclusive to the entire world? Come anyone, Jeremiah, come and buy without money, come and drink. What's the only requirement? That you're hungry and that you're thirsty. That's the gospel. The only requirement is that you come and you lay down your works, you lay down your righteousness, you lay down your rebellion, but you also lay down your religion. And you come to the door. And Jesus says he stands at the door and he knocks. And if we let him in, he will come in and dwell within us. If you put your faith in the finished work of Jesus, if you've never done that, today's the day to do it. And as we respond, I'll be down here. I would love to talk to you. All you gotta do is say, hey, I wanna put my faith in Jesus today. I would be glad to talk with you to help make sure you understand what that means and then pray with you. But for the rest of us, the standard still applies. The standard that we should love others. It's a command. It's an imperative in the text that we should love others the way we long to be loved. It's still there. It's still an imperative. The Bible wasn't written for us to read all these commands and go, oh man, that's so hard. Good thing Jesus did it for me. All right, see you next week. That although we cannot obey the standard in our own flesh, the good news of the gospel is that now we obey the standard not to be saved, but because we are saved. And God has given us his spirit to work within us. And now we are able to obey the standard. And the only way we'll obey the standard is we remember that's the standard that Jesus Christ loved us. The only way that I will love you, the way that I long to be loved, is when I remember that's exactly how Jesus Christ has loved me in the gospel. Now, by the Holy Spirit, I can obey the standard as I remember the gospel. So for the rest of us, dwell on, focus on, clear your schedule, do whatever you have to do to start your day to remember the gospel because it will determine the way that you love one another. When you remember the standard with which God has loved you, you will love others with that same standard. But if you wake up, 
and you convince yourself that you've earned this and you deserve it and you've been given what you are owed because of your behavior, then you will walk around and expect everybody else to earn it and to deserve it and you'll give people what you think they deserve. You see the difference? The standard still applies. But the good news of the gospel is we obey it now not to be saved, but because we've been saved. And by his spirit, when we remember how much he's loved us, we'll love each other with that same standard. Two roads, two gates, two destinations. Stand on your own works and lead to destruction or stand on the finished work of Christ with empty hands and you'll find the life you've always longed for.